Welcome everyone to Nuck If You Buck, the Milwaukee Bucks podcast that explains how your local team stacks up against the rest of the NBA. Hello everyone, welcome to Nuck If You Buck, the Milwaukee Bucks podcast hosted by me, Devin Zanskis. Today I'm also joined by our, by our very first guest, JJ Rivera. What's up, JJ? Hey, what's up, Devin? Not much, not much. Just uh, getting into it. It's a pleasure to have you on, and it's a pleasure to be joined by a fellow sports business classroom alumni. And also, congratulations on uh, becoming a contributor at Fansighted for the Lakers there. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Bo of Sports Business Classroom said you might have set the record for uh, fastest uh Let's see, fastest time in getting a job following the conference. So congratulations there. Hey, thank you, man. And also, I am very grateful for you to have me. And yeah, I think I might have set a record for the fastest hire after the conference. So I hope somebody beats it because that would be really good. Yeah, hey, here's to it being me next year. But (laughs) hey, I'm happy it's someone. All right. Thank you, man. Yeah. So what really brings you in here, though, is... Not only being a Lakers fan, but also a Miami Heat fan. Um, are you able to say on the record whether or not you're more of a Heat fan or a Lakers fan? Well, I'm more of a Heat fan, but I'm also okay. a huge LeBron fan. So I mm. have closely followed LeBron's teams after his departure from the Heat. But yeah, gotcha. you could say I'm more of a Heat fan, but yeah, I really love LeBron, so... Okay, I'd have to say the same. Hopefully it's not controversial for someone who has Giannis on his side. And um, that also brings me into my first question here uh, coming into, I was just curious on your background of when and why you became a Heat fan. Was that kind of around the time that LeBron joined the Heat? Or um, my thought was maybe it was because of Puerto Rico's uh, close proximity to Miami. So yeah, I would... I would say both because I started watching the NBA around the year 2010. The Lakers-Celtics okay. finals was actually the first final series I ever watched. And I, well, I fell in love with the game of basketball, but I really didn't have a team to root for. And well, gotcha. we all know what happened that summer. Well, LeBron <laughs> went to Miami. And I basically looked at it like this. Miami's the closest NBA team to Puerto Rico. And I have an aunt who lives in Miami. She lives pretty... In not super near the, the not super close to the stadium, but pretty close by. And I have visited the stadium many times. Unfortunately, when I visit her, it's during the summertime, so there are no games. So, yeah. yeah, I looked at it that way. Okay, yeah, and unfortunately, you're uh, unable to break into the bubble like the rest of us. Otherwise, that maybe would have been a convenient time for you this summer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but it's funny that you say... Um, that you outlined that as the time you became an NBA fan because it was pretty similar to me and it makes sense because I think I saw in your email you have the 98 uh, number in your email or year yeah. rather and I was born in 97 so I kind of came into the game around the same time. I remember before school every day I'd watch like the ESPN top 10s and and game recaps and particularly my first bandwagon team were those young Oklahoma City teams. I remember oh, I really wanted my soccer team to have those same blue and orange <laughs> colors, although that never happened. Those but, things were really fun to watch. 
man, yeah, they were incredible. And I'm also a huge LeBron fan. And I remember being on that side of the Kobe-LeBron debates back when that was a huge topic. And I even, so I started out sort of as, other than a Bucks fan, being like a bandwagon Thunder fan because they were the new team in the association, young team. But then when that finals happened, I just, I don't know if it was, I have no clue why it was, but I just could not help but like root for LeBron and, you know, root for witnessing greatness. Yeah, I mean, that those 2012 playoffs, he was, he had one of the all-time great runs during those playoffs. I, before I I started working for Fansighted, I highlighted his playoff runs. And I gotcha. concluded that his 2012 playoff run was probably one of the greatest playoff runs ever, anyone's ever had. He had one of the yeah. he had one of the highest win share totals in NBA playoff history. He was ridiculously efficient. Highlighted by that game 6 in Boston. Okay, was that the same year when they had that crazy regular season win streak as well or am I confusing the seasons there? No. Actually, the 20 20- 12 season was the lockout shortened season. That's when LeBron okay. won his first title. The 2013 Heat, which were arguably the better team, well, he they went on a 27-game winning streak. Okay, That's that was year. 13. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, moving on from LeBron, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I also kind of wanted to get your perspective as a Heat fan. I'm sure a lot of our listeners here, and honestly myself included, didn't really focus a ton on watching Heat basketball versus mainly just the Bucks and probably an equal share of everyone else. What's something that either a casual fan or maybe even a serious NBA fan like myself might misunderstand about the Miami Heat this season? So that's a great question, Devin. Well, what I would say is that a serious misconception would be that we rely heavily on Jimmy for our scoring. Mm-hmm. I mean, in game one and game three, he had 40 and 30 points. But he was barely a 20 points per game score in the regular season. But That's his right. real value lied in his playmaking and his ability to draw fouls. He actually led the team in assists, had a career-best assist, uh, assist per game average with six, and he had seven games with 10-plus assists. And he was sixth in the league in fouls drawn per game and fourth in free throw attempts per game. So that would I, I would say that his main contribution came in, the, in his playmaking ability. His defense, obviously, he's one of the top two-way players in the game right now. And yeah, that's that's about that's what I would say to those casual NBA fans that haven't watched a lot of Heat basketball lately this season. Gotcha. Yeah, I would say I definitely when I picture Heat basketball and maybe. Maybe this is sort of the disparity disparity between a casual and a serious NBA fan, but I hear a lot of talk on how they're actually shooting shooting the three-point shot incredibly well. In fact, Duncan Robinson had an insane shooting season. Oh, He's, yeah, he did. He was, what are my numbers here? Well, I know he, he was fourth in the league in three-point percentage, 12th in attempts, and then he was fifth in total makes, and he's around fourth or fifth in total career three-point percentage as well. And I know it's only a young career, but that's pretty phenomenal for 
for a guy to be doing that at any point in his career. Um, and then you just have have a ton of shooting around Jimmy and Bam too. Um, Goran is certainly no no slouch there. He's around. He's at least around league average from the field and the three point line. You're surrounded by other shooters like Jay Crowder. Andre Iguodala can knock down a three, although he joined the team late. Uh, a couple other young guards and Tyler Harrow, Tyler I mean, Harrow and Kendrick Nunn. Yeah, those two young guns have been really huge for us this season. I actually wanted to highlight something from Duncan Robinson this season. He shot nearly eight. He shot eight three-point attempts per game, and he made forty-five percent of them. That's that's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, again, twelfth in attempts, but then but then fifth in makes and fourth in percentage. And from a second-year guy, that's incredible. Yeah. I, that's a, that's an incredible find by the Heat organization. Absolutely, credit to the Heat organization and Pat Riley there. Um, I also wanted to uh, quick go over that last Magic game, if you don't mind, JJ. Oh yeah, um, sure. since that was the um, there was only there was only that one Magic game that occurred since my last podcast here, and luckily the Bucks were able to take it home there. I'd like to highlight how the Bucks actually used pick and roll a little bit more than than they normally would have in the regular season. They were definitely bottom five in pick and roll, but they were able to use that to get some easy, easy shots in the paint and just the overall ball movement of the Bucks were able to drive them there. They um, into the third quarter, and or excuse me, after the first quarter, the Bucks were still kind of close there only had a one point lead and they were close in field goal percentage as well um however uh kind of halfway through the second the magic uh, field goal percentage dropped to only 31 percent and eventually later in the second they had they had uh gotten up to a 67 to 50 point lead uh, just right at the end there, which was the biggest lead up to that point. Yeah, the Bucks outscored them by 12 that quarter, 41 to 29. Yeah, absolutely nuts. And but you know that's that's what you should expect out of a series between uh, the one seed and the eight seed, uh, despite what Game One showed us there. Yeah. Um, and then the Magic would go on a bit of a run then in the second quarter hitting a ton of threes themselves. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of the third quarter, they had, or up to the fourth quarter, excuse me, they had had they had shot 9 of 15 threes to the Bucks 2 of 14. And then uh, Bud would eventually call a timeout in the fourth quarter where the Bucks would kind of close it out with an 8-0 to run. And then, um, let's see, Giannis, even though he has five fouls, he would return with with five minutes left, and Chris would already have 21 points, nine rebounds, and seven assists with 30 minutes into the game. And then, yeah, overall, we were able to take it home. Again, like to highlight the tremendous ball movement of the Bucks. That's something I definitely would have loved to see more from them in this Heat series. And you know, as opposed to when when the Bucks do kind of get stopped there, it's kind of you, you. That's when you get to see Bledsoe kind of 
kind of hesitating on those three-point shots and then eventually taking them uh, contested. And then um, Jeff Van Gundy would have to say after the game that he believes that it was good for the Bucks to actually be challenged by the eighth seed. But now we'll get into game one where... <laughs> Uh, where we'll we'll find out how much good it actually did did for them. So in the start of game one, Goran Dragic Dragic really surprised me. I knew he was he was still certainly a, like a starting quality guard, at least middle of the pack there, where there's a ton of talent around the league. Just his early aggression there, getting into the paint, hitting shots over the taller defenders, really stood out there. Um, and then you saw a lot of following of three-point shooters from both sides. Um, JJ, I'd like to ask you, what do you think um, changed the momentum of the game? Um, if it was anything that stood out in particular that the Heat did to go from being down 13 after the, fir- after the first quarter to only down three at half and then taking a six-point lead going into the fourth. Yeah. Well, I think that Spo's adjustments after the first quarter, they really paid dividends because, as you remember, Miami gave up 40 first-quarter points, but then only allowed 64 for the rest of the game. That's an incredible, incredible defensive job by the Heat. I would say Giannis' poor free-throw shooting kept them in the game alongside Goran Dragic's offensive production. He scored 19 in the first half. But what I would really highlight is the third quarter because Coach Budenholzer took out Chris Middleton and there were 3.59 left, and the score was tied at 78. Miami won those minutes without Middleton, and they closed out the quarter with a six-point lead. Which highlights my issues with Bud in this series. Why does he insist on not playing his best players more minutes? Kyle Korver got 16 minutes of action in that game. There's absolutely no reason for that. And it ended up costing them the game. Alongside, well, Giannis's well-documented free throw problems. He shot four from 12 from the field, from the line, excuse me, which was atrocious. And he was, he didn't look like himself. He was, he was clearly bothered by the heats. I would say their wall that they built around yep. every time he, he caught the ball at the top of the key or he was driving and that really paid dividends for them. Absolutely. Yeah. That wall, as we've seen from both the heat and Toronto and, and other teams around the league certainly bothered him. Definitely more than it did in the Orlando series. I wonder if that has to do with uh, kind of the Heat's uh, just being more aggressive on the wing and kind of uh, st- kind of crowding the passing lanes for the shooters. Because if Giannis is able to drive into the wall and get to at least if the wall forms um, by the by the free throw line, then if we have shooters kind of back towards the top of the arc, then then he at least has more options there. But it seemed in this series, he was he was definitely less able to take advantage of that. Um, he, Giannis also by the end of the game had just as many turnovers as he did points in in the paint. That six in each of those categories, and we know in the ser- in the uh, regular season we've seen him uh, put up like triple the amount of points in the paint that he did there. So we definitely want to see um, see less turnovers, more points in the paint for him, definitely more time on the floor, and limit those fouls. But yeah, that was but the, yeah. the the foul troll was really 
was really key for the Bucks because Giannis, I believe he had 3,000 the first quarter, if I'm not mistaken, right, that game? Yeah, yeah. He, if not if not in the first quarter, definitely by the first half there. And he only had nine points. Um, but luckily, um, Chris and especially Brooke compared to his regular season, season production was able to step up. They both had 40 points at half. And through the series thus far, uh, each of uh, Brooke, Giannis, and Chris all had over 20 points per game. But those are definitely... Uh, taking into consideration that Giannis's scoring averages have actually dropped, Chris's have remained the same, and Brooke, as I said, the one really stepping up there, uh, going over 20 points when he struggled during the regular season. Another big, <laughs> um, big fault of the Bucks there was allowing so many points in the paint, especially in that first game. They, the Bucks fans know that we kind of. We kind of run this historic defense on stopping the easy shots in the paint, even at the expense of allowing three-point shots. And that's kind of a big thing where it was really understandable when you would see uh, even the national media really worried about this Buck series, and rightfully so, because the Heat, the Heat has shooters, and they definitely have um, a tough matchup for the Bucks, as proved when they won the regular season series two to one while having Jimmy to throw at Chris Bam to throw at Giannis and not only those two, but now Jay Crowder, Andre Iguodala and Derek Jones Jr. Uh, Do you have anything else to add specifically from game one, JJ? Otherwise I'll move on to game two. Well, I just wanted to add a quick, a quick thing. He had 38 points in the paint through three quarters that is the same amount that yes. milwaukee allowed per game so that mm-hmm. was so that was a, a huge problem for them because yeah. they pride themselves in as you said packing the paint and not allowing anybody to get easy looks at the rim they would rather give up threes but the problem lies when you start giving up those looks and start giving up three-point shots and you're in really big trouble with that yeah you definitely if, if you pride on if you pride yourself on limiting points in the paint and uh, even at the expense of shooting threes. Um, if you're allowing both, you're definitely not going to end up um, doing uh, you're not doing, doing well for your team there as you could be. Um, actually, well, allow me to stop myself there from moving on to game one. And um, I'd like to point this out, my uh, almost miss there to Bucks fans and Really giving credit where credit is due and put some respect on Jimmy Butler's name, of course. He exploded <laughs> yeah. for a career-high uh, 40 uh, playoff points there, 15 of which came in the fourth quarter. Yeah, f- and then 13 of those 14 fourth-quarter points came in the last four minutes um, on 5 of 5 shooting. And I thought this was a huge problem there and kind of another highlighting highlighting another questionable decision by Bud there. For whatever reason, uh, Pat Connaughton, um, as much as we love Pat, um, definitely we wish Wesley would have replaced him there in that closing lineup. And then also two of Jimmy's biggest uh, shots there were when he was lined up against George Hill. And although George is, is really smart defensively and long for a guard, he's giving up at least four inches and 30 pounds on Jimmy Butler, who's who's really, really aggressive, has a winner's mentality, and um, 
yeah, is just really going to eat up George Hill if he's checked on him, especially uh, late in the fourth quarter. So, shout out Jimmy Butler, but that's definitely not the last you'll hear of him um, later in the series and later in this podcast. Moving on to game two, um, Bledsoe was actually back for game two. Um, he was missed, as I failed to mention, in the last game of the Orlando series and in game one here. Um, but I forget to mention that because he kind of, again, has sort of sunk in these playoffs. In this in this series alone, his, his point averages are are down again and his his shot selection is questionable as well. Early in game two, um, there were there were a lot of early air balls from both sides. Um, although Dragic was again doing the same thing he was doing early in game one, being the aggressor, hitting uh, hitting shots over taller defenders. Um, and if it weren't for uh, Brooke catching two fouls behind the three point arc and having uh, nearly all of the Bucks points early. It could have gotten ugly there. Yeah, I just want to add something. That fouling, fouling jump shooters, spoiler alert, was a really important theme in this game. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that soon and quick enough. But it was it was really frustrating to watch, man, because I I don't remember a game where I where I've seen so many fouls on jump shooters from both sides. It was like it was. I, I don't know if the I mean. Let's be fair, that that night the refs had a very tough night across the NBA. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely get to it in the end there and, and how this game ended, but it's really it's really something that I hope is a point of emphasis for the refs and and I say that also not knowing how they should address it, because it's really tough to balance the fact that it is it's a really easy way for someone to get injured a la Kawhi Leonard and how these rules kind of um, became points of emphasis and, and now are being sort of abused. But so it's, it's tough to, to argue against protecting the shooter, but also Reggie Miller was saying later in the series that he, he just doesn't know, know how you're supposed to defend jump shooters anymore at this point. Yeah, and I it's, agree. it's tough because you're jumping towards the jump shooter to defend as well. So, um, I'd I'd say if I had to guess, at least ninety five to ninety nine percent of the time, it's not malicious, and players aren't going out trying to slide underneath shooters. Yeah, I don't I don't really see a Zaza Pachulia situation where he where a player clearly tried to injure uh, a jump shooter. I mean, it it was just inadvertent, inadvertent. So. But I agree with Red with Reggie's statement. Uh, I don't know if you're gonna start calling that. I don't know how you defend jump shooters in the NBA anymore. Yeah, I really, I really have no idea how um, the NBA is gonna try to balance that. But I'd, I'd say that they're definitely going to make some adjustments and make the games more watchable after watching the, these uh, playoff bubble games. Uh, moving on a bit into Game Three here. Both Giannis and Chris had uh, three fouls in the second quarter again, but that second quarter, despite that first statement there, the Bucks really had most of the most of the free throw attempts there early on, and definitely um, kept them in the game. As um, at halftime, 
uh, points in the paint were nearly even, and that's not good for, again, as we mentioned, a team like the Bucks who pride themselves on winning that matchup and doing so more than any other team in the league. Drogic leads all scorers, and um, even though, yeah, he leads all scorers, uh, although Giannis, Chris, and Bledsoe all had uh, over 10 points at half. But Giannis and Chris obviously had those three fouls, so that limited them. Uh, Bud was actually also able to successfully challenge a Giannis foul call that was switched to a blocking call on Jimmy. And uh, bef- before I move on from there, I also want to point out that I could see Bucks fans using this early foul trouble for Chris and Giannis as an excuse for Bledsoe not playing them more. But let's just remind everyone that Buck that Butt has been known for this even before uh, coming to the Bucks that he that he really just sticks sticks to his guns for better and at a lot of times in the playoffs worse when you really need to ramp up your best player's minutes. I kind of thought about it today sort of similar to um like if you're if you're in an elimination game in the MLB like you you definitely want to have your starting pitcher out there even if he's even if he's thrown hundreds of pitches over the past three days. I'm not a baseball guy. Maybe that's not the best example, but uh, Seth, Seth Partnow also tweeted out, uh, maybe it's a good idea to have your best players on the floor no matter what. So tough for the Bucks that they had foul trouble, made it harder on Bud, but you got to throw them out there no matter what. Hoopheads Nation, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Knuck If You Buck with Devin Zanskis. Be sure to check out these other basketball pods on the Hoopheads Podcast Network, including Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, and our two latest releases, Players Court and Bleachers and Boards. We also have two other team-focused NBA podcasts out right now, Grizz and Grind and Cavalier Central, with many more to come. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads Podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel featuring the best minds in the game from grassroots to the NBA. These last two calls, would you like to touch on that first? Oh, absolutely. Thank you, (laughs) because I have been holding this in for so long. Those last two calls were, were, I mean, for both sides, for the Bucks and for the Heat, they were absolutely bogus. I -hmm. mean, the first one, Dragic, fouls Milton on a three-point shot and the Bucks were down three and well that happened and <laughs> and yeah. I believe Dragic did not foul him Dragic was was vertical he gave him enough space I think Milton actually leaned into him a little bit and if, yeah. if so I believe in a, in the last seconds of a playoff game of a close playoff game you don't officials usually don't call that I mean that's yeah. That's a that's hey that's a play on. This is a it's a playoff game, and then the Giannis one was also really bad. I don't think you should have called that. But then again, I think I think of it more of a, of a, as a makeup call due to the nature Absolutely. of the last one because that that last one the Heat ended up losing because in overtime due to that bogus call. I think sports talk shows were gonna have a 
we're going to have a field day with that because refs that night in particular were absolutely atrocious. I mean, you could also see it in Game 7 of the Thunder Rockets series that yeah. night that Scott Foster hijacked <laughs> the, the end of the game and he just said, hey, I'm the star here. And I'm going to take a really long time to review stuff that that I, uh, that really slows down the momentum of the game and actually damages the product. I saw a lot of people on Twitter complaining that the product is suffering a lot due to these in, in constant reviews of calls that officials feel the need to do. And I just thought thought it was a really bad game by officials. And at least in game three, I didn't see so many egregious calls, but yeah, yeah that, that game was really rough. Yeah, I mean, I think... That was certainly the worst officiated game of this series and of the Bucks playoffs that I've seen so far. And when you add add in that Scott Foster game seven as well, that's that's probably the worst officiated night of, of the entire playoffs that I can recall. But specifically those last two shots, I agree with you wholeheartedly is probably anyone who who has been watching these games would agree. They're both the the main thing is just they're not calls that you make in in the last seconds of the game. You know, it's there's a precedent there, and you you clearly allow the players to play more in the last seconds than you do earlier on in the game. You you don't want to see a game finished on two free throws after the after the game's already after there's already zeros on the shot clock. And specifically on those plays, I Drogic hard, hardly even moved. He might have, he might have already even been planted like right around, if not at the same time or before uh, Chris put up that shot. And you know, uh, D- Doris Burke also said that that the defender is entitled to their space as well. So again, I'll be looking forward to seeing kind of how how the refs sort out the disparity in the space entitled to both the shooter and the defender and who is who is in the wrong in uh, situations like that. And then the Giannis call, I would say, I, I heard people saying, saying that in a way the Giannis call is more defensible and I see that because it's just not smart of Giannis to to put his hand on on a on a shooter especially if he's in the air like that it's just there's there's no excuse for it whereas even though the the result could have been worse if Chris had been actually injured on that play i i think it's definitely more yeah, uh Drogic's contest was definitely more defensible so yeah uh, i think that i still disagree with how they call the Giannis, the Giannis one? Yeah, it's super yeah, it soft. Was, it was, it was, it was a dumb play on his part because he, uh, he, he put himself in position. He put the official, he put the game in the hands of the official essentially, because he went over to to Jimmy and he just laid his left hand, even though he, even though it was just like it was like touching him. But with the way the game was being officiated, I would, if I was Bud, I would just tell him, hey, don't touch him like just 
put your hand up and if he makes it so be it but don't touch him and yep that's what happened they touched him and the game ended on two free throws after the buzzer sounded which i had never seen in my life yeah and especially coming after like that super questionable call in the bucks favor it definitely wasn't out of the realm of of reasonable possibilities as as it was proved proven by the execution that that the refs would make a makeup call just just like that so I'd I'd say it was just like a makeup call kind of karma for the Heat there if they kind of got robbed on that last foul and those three free throws that you know maybe they got a friendly whistle on the next play in the end if the if the Bucks wanted to win that they should have wanted it more and they also definitely should have came with a little added aggression in game three there. Um, in game three, Olenek was actually out for the Heat, which I thought would maybe play a part in what I would have hoped would have been a Bucks victory. But uh, spoiler alert for those who have been living under a rock: uh, it was not a Bucks victory. Um, yeah, after Olenek hit that, uh, hit that super clutch three in game two. JJ, were you concerned about losing Olenek? Yes, I was yeah. really concerned, especially when I saw who they put out there. They put Myers Leonard, who has it, who hadn't played in the entire series, and they, and he was really bad in those seven, yeah, those those minutes that he played. He was he was actually a plus three, but I believe this is one of those times where the where the box score doesn't reflect how the player performed. He really struggled on the boards. Brooke Lopez was abusing him. And he couldn't defend anybody. And it was really rough. I really thought that we were going to lose just because of those minutes. I was I was like, oh my god, we're, we're really going to lose. Yeah, I sort of thought maybe it would balance out because I I was surprised it was Olenek instead of Iguodala that was out. But just kind of what you outlined there and the importance of the role that Olenek plays, just being that upgrade over Myers Leonard who would be scored on on back-to-back buckets on Brook there and and the heat um kind of definitely to their benefit have have more than enough defenders to throw on Giannis even without Iguodala um I was kind of surprised that they had that they had Myers in at all even though it was for a brief time when Brook proved to be effective over him, but I, I thought they would have just thrown Derek Derek Jones Jr. in there instead because of how, how good he played, especially in game one when when yeah Iguodala was or no that was game two. That was Sorry. game two. Yeah. I mean pardon me. I have some I have some thoughts on Derek Jones. Yes, I mean, please. In, in oh, game yeah. Two. <laughs> Sorry, JJ. If I if I'd interrupt, I believe that was the question I was getting at um, when I realized that you were gone and had been rambling for a bit. So please, thoughts on Derek Jones for the guests? Oh, and and thank God you started rambling because I really had to scramble and look for for another internet source. But here I am. <laughs> it happens. First podcast together. Oh yeah. So anyway, my thoughts on Derek Jones, Derek Jones Jr. I mean. He was fine in the seven minutes he played in game two. I still don't expect him, uh, if, especially if Andre, Andre Godala is healthy, I don't expect to see much of him in this series because he's most effective at the rim, which ironic, uh, which we all know is where the Bucks don't allow you to, to operate. Um, 
but the series has proved otherwise in some cases. And he's not strong enough to guard Giannis. He gets pushed around easily. And when you're trying to build a wall, you need strong defenders. When So when Giannis like, drives into you, you can hold your own. Like Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder is built like a, built like a tank. And yeah. he, he can take Giannis's drives. And sometimes even he gets overpowered. Mm-hmm. So Derek Jones's Derek Jones's frame, he's he's really skinny. He can he can jump really high and he's really athletic. But yeah, he I wouldn't expect to see too much of him this series. Well, at least if if the Bucks end up getting swept, I guess we won't see him for this game. Next game on Sunday. Yeah, we'll get into predictions later, um, but maybe the fans can already kind of imagine where we're going to be going with those predictions. I, I'm I'm a little surprised surprised to hear those thoughts on Derek Jones Jr. But you're you're the Miami Heat expert. I was just really impressed in his performance in game in game two when he came in. He was just he he seemed to to play a really. Uh, really large impact in forcing so many turnovers against the Bucks. Just having really active hands and and good timing there as as dudes go up for shots. But I can definitely see how the strength advantage, especially uh, against Giannis and Brook, is more important there. Um, moving on from uh, DJJ Derek Jones Jr. Um, there were a lot of parallels to Game One to the chagrin of Bucks fans uh, as we'll get into later um, but something that was independent of this game was Giannis's twisted ankle and and it definitely showed even though Giannis was able to produce and he had comments even after the game saying that he could have played more does that speak more to just his character and his will to win or a mini shot at Bud? Maybe let's not speculate until later on in the podcast. But that also uh, attributed to Goran Dragic's early foul trouble. And that really uh, put a damper on the Heat's early success, especially because he was an aggressor early on in both of the previous two games that we had talked about Um but just like the previous two games, Jay Crowder would would uh, prove to hit more uh, clutch threes all throughout the game. Um, and yeah, I just thought that there was a lot of really sloppy play early on, especially from the Bucks, where obviously my focus is. Um, but luckily, the three point battle was pretty close early, which is to the Bucks' benefit typically as those are the shots that they allow. Similar to game one, we would see uh, Chris and Brooke leading the way and the Bucks would go on a 15 to four run to close out the last four minutes of the, th- of the third quarter. Um, but like game one is I'll say for the millionth time regarding game three, the Bucks collapse in the fourth, and even worse than before. Uh, before I get go into it, uh, I'll pause myself here and go to you, JJ, for any reactions. Uh, what were your thoughts on that fourth quarter there? Well, I believe that, well, first of all, I just want to say that this game three loss, I would 
put it squarely on Mike Budenholzer's shoulders. I mean, yeah, sure, Giannis was might have been injured, but this is this is do or die time. I mean, we saw what Nick Nurse did in Game Three with the Raptors. He put Kyle Lowry, a 34-year-old Kyle Lowry, I might add. He played 46 minutes in Game Three. They ended up winning, of course, with by that OG and an OB miraculous three, but it worked. It proved to be successful for them. And the Bucks in that fourth quarter, the, I mean, but took Giannis out of the game in the fourth quarter, and then the, he inserted him back in. And by that time, the Heat had all the momentum. And for the last couple of minutes of that game, the Bucks' body language really was really concerning. They. It was god awful. <laughs> yeah, they they suddenly looked defeated. They were they were ready to go home. That I, w- I was telling, I think I I I told you or one of my friends. I said, hey, they're they're done. If if they have that type of body language in a game like this, then what's the point? You're not winning a championship that way. And this is a team that's built to win a championship. Yeah. Well. I don't think you texted me that during the game, but I'd like to thank you for not rubbing it in at that point. As I'll admit, I was I was pretty fragile up until today. I didn't even have, I didn't even have <laughs> the strength to tweet about what had happened. I was just oh man i I was just at a loss of words. And to your point, Bud really dropped the ball as much as it is probably in most cases. And maybe what it boils down to, no matter what, poor execution on on the players that you actually throw out there. But it's just silly in a pivotal game to take out your best player and then allow them to go on a on a sixteen to two run while your best guy is on the bench. And at that point, it like where where does where does that poor body language maybe come from? And and. That's on the players for having that body language, but also you didn't put them in a position to be successful when you gave the Heat that momentum um, after the Bucks had uh, fought hard uh, throughout I, the game. Just to give it away like that, it's really shameful on Bud and the rest of the Bucks. Yeah, I wanted to point out a quick, uh, really nice nugget that I found in Twitter on Twitter. I mean, another indictment on Bud's coaching this series i think this might be the worst coaching i've seen in a playoff series by an objectively good coach you i i don't know if you would agree with that but i think so because he has he has been thoroughly outmaneuvered by eric spolstra and here's an interesting stat nikias duncan of basketball news he posted this he said that the he posted a video of the bucks defensive coverage against jimmy butler in pick and roll situations and the Bucks are actually going over screens against Butler, who is a 30.5% jump shooter on those in those situations. So they're shooting their, themselves in the foot with that. And I think that falls on Bud because he's the one that should tell his boys, hey, go under the screen. Let him shoot. If he makes it, so be it. But he's not going to kill us with that. Play the percentages. Yeah, wow, that's really shocking considering considering the Bucks' defensive focus throughout the year and what they're famous for and allowing three-point shooters. And especially uh, the reason why I was I was trying to get at earlier was how I understood the balanced attack from the Heat versus maybe others wouldn't, like you had touched on casual fans, because it was, 
if not, definitely Russell Westbrook caught a lot of heat for for his lack of three-point shooting, but he's kind of been known for that for his career. And Jimmy Butler especially fell off in that category, um, even though he was able to make up for it and getting other players involved, doing doing the little things and getting to the line instead. But yeah, I mean, if that's the evidence you get in in a 62-game sample or 58, I believe, in Jimmy's case, then then you just got to run with that in the playoffs, even if he's even if he's shooting well in clutch situations. Uh, you know, let let yeah. let the larger sample size play out. I wanted to add something. I also saw a tweet from Kurt Goldsberry who attended SBC, and he I actually got a chance to talk to him. And he, oh God, gave I think me, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he gave me the stat. <laughs> yeah, well, Russell Westbrook. Well, people usually put him as the worst high volume shooter in the NBA, but this season it was actually Jimmy Butler by quite a margin. He had the worst effective field goal percentage among among pl- among players who had an X amount of attempts, and it was really bad. And I think it's it 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 speaks to to Jimmy and the Heat how they have been able to to go past that and still be an effective effective player. So I don't understand the box defensive strategy against against Jimmy once again because that when I saw that video I was like wow they are really shooting themselves in the foot and they are not doing any adjustments. I mean at least they put Wes Matthews more time more more minutes on him but still Yeah. Yeah, funny. Okay, so yeah, sorry. I thought you were alluding to alluding to a buck stat from Kirk yesterday that that I didn't write down, but I definitely remember uh, going through NBA Twitter and just being in shambles and uh, Kirk contributing to that. But shout out Kirk for his great work and for uh, contributing to SBC this year. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm I'm sort of in the same place now. Just just recapping that. Awful Bucks loss, but I guess I'll point it um, back on Jimmy Butler, but more towards the positive end on his, again, uh, fourth quarter heroics there. Total 30 points, but he had 17 in the fourth quarter, and he, and he was just doing everything for the Heat, including uh, when, he, when he shot the ball, he was able to recognize uh, from his release that, that it went long, and he got an offensive rebound there. Just oh, yeah. adding to that momentum that we spoke on that uh, that Bud allowed the Heat to run away with. Um, I also want to say I want to oh, point out I, I don't I don't want to add salt to your wound, but Jimmy Butler by himself outscored the entire Bucks team in the fourth quarter, seventeen to thirteen. Seventeen to thirteen, a hundred percent right. Hundred so, percent. That was, I think. I think there was the, this was the worst game of the series by far because game one, sure, they took a punch in the mouth. Game two, they they looked like they were turning a corner even though they lost. I really thought they were going to win tonight because last night, I'm, I'm, I mean, because I really expected more from them because this is this was their season and they didn't show up in that fourth quarter. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at where... It's largely on Bud for not putting his teammates in the right position there and putting them in the exact worst position, but also also on the Bucks for letting that momentum get to them and just 
just you could see it on the screen there and their, their lack of urgency at the end when when you know when you know it's a do or die situation when when uh when you see the stats shared there at the end that teams are are zero and one hundred thirty nine when they're down zero and three in the series um to just to just have that god awful body language is inexcusable for Bucks players um from there. I guess we'll go for predictions on the series. Uh, JJ, how, how I'd like to do this is if you can recall, would, could you share your predictions from uh, before game one and then now your prediction after game three? Well, before game one, I had the heat in seven. I really thought that it was going to be a really competitive series. But now I would say heat in four. The Bucks they... I'm sorry, man, but they they look ready to go home. 100%. I can't even argue that as a Bucks fan. And I even was pretty forthright in my introduction to this whole podcast series that that I'll do my best to re- to remain unbiased, but that's just simply impossible um being born and raised here in Milwaukee. Um but I'll share my predictions for the series. Uh, shout out Brandon Jennings for the culture. I had Bucks and six. I definitely heard and understood all the analysis for um, why the Heat were such a terrible matchup for the Bucks, and I definitely saw their the Heat take the season series. Um, but I had optimistic in seeing seeing the last game that the that the Bucks won and seeing. Vintage Giannis being able to spin spin past defenders and on that wall, and in the playoffs as a soon to be two time MVP, I was hoping Giannis would really would really raise uh, raise for the occasion, and maybe more importantly, Chris Middleton was a fifty forty, damn near not quite, but almost a fifty forty ninety player on uh, over twenty one. Around 21, 22 points per game. I thought he would really make a huge difference compared to last playoffs. And uh, Bubble Brook was was certainly uh, a revelation for the Bucks compared to what he was offensively for the Bucks. Even if he's more important on the other end. So I had Bucks in six. All due respect to the Heat, especially now. Um, but now my prediction is I'll predict a, a gentleman's sweep. Probably the smart thing after what we all just outlined would be to uh, choose Heat and four. They take it home. They remain. They go to eight and zero on uh, the playoffs. In fact, I believe before this game, they were the first ever four seed to be six and zero in the playoffs. At this point, now they're the first ever to be seven zero, and I could definitely see them being the first fourth seed to be eight and zero. But. Uh, just for my Bucks biases and my eternal optimism, I will go a gentleman's sweep. Bucks take the next game, but uh, then the Heat respond and just take care of business. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't disagree with that. And actually, the Heat were a fifth seed. To, fifth seed, to, my bad. Yeah, yeah. So thank I you. Mean, well, in the listen, in the bubble. I don't think stand seeding matters as much as it regularly does because. I for True. sure I would I would I assure you that if we were in the regular playoffs the Bucks wouldn't be in this position. I would at least they would at least be down or or two one or 
the series would be tied, but no, not or they would be ahead. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but not like this. Yeah, and, I mean, I definitely. Uh, I I thank you for being being kind to the Bucks in that regard and bringing up the fact that that their home court advantage that they had worked so hard for over the season was just uh, ripped away from COVID and this bubble environment. And I I don't think I don't think they would have lost both like the first two games like they did here uh, had they been playing in the Deer District in Milwaukee and uh, a pandemic not had swept our nation, but. I, but yeah, from, from this, it's definitely, there's a lot more to it, but, but, uh, I, I do thank you for being kind on the bucks there. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up here with going more towards your work. So we had mentioned that you're a contributor for the Lakers at Fansided. If there's a little more to it, feel more than welcome to, uh, correct me on that, but, if you'd want, I'll give you the opportunity here to mention that uh, Lakers Rockets game one. Um, you can touch as much as you want on it, or just leave it there and tell listeners where they can find your writing, if you wish. But I'll just I'll just give it to you from there to touch on Lakers Rockets briefly. Well, I don't know if we have enough time. I just want to okay. I just want to mention my most important point from last night's game. Why did why is Rajon Rondo playing twenty five minutes in his first game back? <laughs> that that was the, the Rockets were delighted when he was on the floor. Uh huh. Absolutely. I mean he he's not a jump shooter. He I mean he made a couple threes, but how many did it take for him to to make those threes? <laughs> LeBron went scoreless in the fourth quarter, which is absolutely that's that's ridiculous. That should never happen. And Anthony Davis was taking too much, too many jump shots. I mean, he didn't score a single point when being guarded by PJ Tucker. He's taller than PJ Tucker. Granted, PJ PJ Tucker is built like a like a wall. That that <laughs> man is strong as heck. But still, Anthony Davis is near seven feet tall. He's got skills, the skills of a guard, and he's got the mobility. And he just settled for jump shots, which which is what the Rockets wanted. And I hated that. I was I was shocked. I was disappointed. The Lakers had 41 rebounds, which is the same amount the the Rockets had. So that should never happen. The Lakers came in averaging 53 rebounds per game in the in the bubble playoffs, which was which was leading the league. And I want to give props to the Rockets. They have the best defense in this bubble in these bubble playoffs. Not the Clippers, not the Lakers, but rather the small ball Mike D'Antoni led Rockets. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Which is, which if you had told me that a couple of weeks ago, I would have laughed in your face. As would but, I. <laughs> but hey, here we are. So, another quick thing that I want to add: JaVale McGee played twelve minutes in that game, and. I think that's reflected in the rebounding category. How the Lakers, I would say, they got out rebounded, even though they got they got the same amount of rebounds as the as the Rockets did. They were out rebounded because this is a, a small team that in no way should have the same amount of rebounds as you do when you got these three incredible front court players. 
that can rebound the ball and they can they op- operate mainly in the paint. So, yeah, I guess one positive is they they had, I believe they had ten offensive rebounds, something like that. So yeah, I guess that's a positive for them. But anyway, not to dwell too much on the Lakers because no, this is a no, bu- this is a Bucks podcast after all. <laughs> uh, you you can find me on Twitter at Jro Rivera ninety eight. That's J A I R O R I V E R A ninety eight. And you can read my work at Fansided for at LakeshowLife.com. I also have my own website with my previous work before joining Fansided, which is called TheJaysReport.com. www.TheJaysReport.com. That's a J-S, not J-A-Y-S. And yeah, that's what I had to, that's my self-promoting part of the podcast. <laughs> of course, please do, JJ. And yeah, to all the listeners out there, please go to Fansided and uh, JJ's website and all of his other social media outlets to check out his work. JJ, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's it's definitely a huge pleasure to to have a guest here, and you're definitely welcome to come back on at any other point. And yeah, thank you so much, man. Really. Oh, yeah. Thank you for Greatly having appreciate me. Appreciate it. I had a blast. Thank you. Of course. And for my listeners out there, I know we're approaching an hour, but I just wanted to touch base on what is definitely far more important than basketball, and that is uh, the fight against racism and social injustice that our players took a stand for um, last week. Um, I wanted to run through a slideshow that I actually saw from the ACLU's Instagram page, kind of outlining other social justice uh, strikes from the past. Um, However, just in the interest of time, uh, I encourage you to just check out the ACLU on Instagram, or they certainly have a website and Twitter as well. And I'd also like to remind you to Go to my link tree on my social accounts. Uh, those are Nuck If You Buck NBA, uh, spelt uh, Nuck If You is a U, U just as in the letter U, and then Buck NBA. So, only difference in how it sounds is the letter U instead of YOU. And same on Twitter. You're also more than welcome to email me. Uh, about anything Bucks related, anything related to this podcast, but especially uh, in regards to social justice and the fight against racism. My email is uh, pod, just as it sounds at gmail.com. And I'll call it there. Thank you, everyone. JJ, I'll see you in another life, brother. Thank you for tuning in to Nuck If You Buck, the Milwaukee Bucks podcast. We hope you join us again. See you in another life, brother.